0: Welcome to Intangibles Podcast. I'm Steve Berg, your host. Success is driven by how as much as by what. How we communicate, how we lead, how we relate to our environment are all vitally important. Intangibles is a podcast that explores the underlying traits, qualities, and behaviors that improve the how. This is accomplished by finding the people who have studied and been successful practicing these soft skills and having informed conversations with them. get to what is learnable. Let's begin. Don't raise your voice, improve your argument. That is what Archbishop Desmond Tutu's father used to tell him. It's not a bad thing to tell all sons and daughters. But if I know my son, the first thing out of his mouth would be, how? And the best answer I could give would be, become a better critical thinker. Done and done. Until he comes back with, Okay, how? And with that, I have become the metaphorical Daffy Duck. Ho, ha-ha, guard, turn, parry, dodge, spin, ha, thrust! Only moments away from my quarterstaff bopping me in the face. As of today, I finally have a good answer to the question, how do I come a, become a better critical thinker? And that is to listen to this podcast. And if you don't understand my Daffy Duck reference, look it up. It brought my eight-year-old self to tears. My guest today is Dr. Diane Halpern, an American psychologist and former president of the American Psychological Association. She is Dean of Social Science at the Minerva School at Keck Graduate Institute, and also the McElway Family Professor of Psychology at Claremont McKenna College. She received her PhD from the University of Cincinnati, a Bearcat. She she has received at least a dozen awards for teaching and research. Her Wikipedia page shows 19 publications, but my guess is there are many more. And for our discussion today, I had the pleasure of reading her text, Thought and Knowledge, An Introduction to Critical Thinking, which, in my estimation, should be sitting on your desk next to a copy of Thinking Fast and Slow. I am now using it as my critical argument reference guide. So to say she is distinguished is an understatement. Dr. Halpern. Welcome to Intangible's podcast. Thanks so much for speaking to me today.
1: Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to it, Steve. Please call me Diane.
0: We'll try. So hopefully the people listening have gathered that you're quite accomplished, but is there anything specifically about your work or career that you would like to highlight?
1: Yeah, I have um, I have a decades-long, long-standing belief in the critical importance of uh, thinking about how we think and helping to make it better. And I think that that's the most important thing I could do as an educator and as a citizen.
0: Great place to start. So let's uh, just dive right in then and give a working definition of critical thinking.
1: Okay, I'm going to back up one step before the definition. Please do. And before we get to the definition, I just wanna say a few words about why this is so important and why I believe it's more important now than ever before. Um, We have whole new vocabulary, fake news, alternative facts, deep fakes, um, misinformation, army bots, post-truth, disinformation, I can go on. These are new terms. And these new terms are underlying something incredibly important. And that is that the way we get information, the way we use it, the way we seek it, has changed radically just in the last decade. And um, this is why I believe, I believe we cannot have a democracy unless we have a democracy where people value thinking, um, an economy. A, a world uh, with of peace, and I think it's more important now than it's ever been, although it's obviously always been important. Uh, for a definition, critical thinking broadly, people would talk about things like good thinking, but that doesn't really get us anywhere. That's just substituting one word for another. Uh, some people like to use the term uh, reflective thinking, But again, I'm not a big fan of that because we find that when you tell people to just think about your thinking, it doesn't get them anywhere. They think, yeah, I think just fine. Thank you. Uh, But I prefer a more operational definition. And that's using those skills, those strategies that are going to increase the probability of a desirable outcome. Um, I don't know, you probably have a number of card players who's listened, and uh, the good ones know that there are certain probabilities, certain strategies they can use, and if they deliberately learn them, and if they use them, they'll increase the probability of winning at their hand. It won't ensure it. We never have certainty. There are too many unknowns, and I think that's a good analogy for just thinking in general.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you that, you know, it's true, everyone wants a desirable outcome, but the process, you know, whether or not you get your outcome, if you can feel comfortable in the process that you've used to get there, then I think you can even, you know, live with the occasional uh, situation where the outcome isn't exactly what you thought. Um, and that will happen no matter how good we are. That's right. Um, all right. And also, um, so what is metacognition and why is that important?
1: Oh, Metacognition is really important. It's thinking about our thinking. And essentially what that is, um, suppose um, I pose a very difficult question like, I don't know, are you for or against charter schools? And I'm sure some of your listeners have strong opinions and many do not. How do we go about answering that question? When do we know when to say you know, I don't have enough information right now to have a meaningful response. Almost no one will say that. Uh, Ask them. Uh, Very few people will say, I don't know enough now. Um, How do we go about making those kinds of decisions? Um, We have very, very uh, strongly divided U.S. voters right now. How do we get them to listen more carefully to both sides? If I don't understand the reasoning for your belief that may be totally opposite to mine, then I really can't understand the issue. Why do you think this is important when I think something opposite is important? It doesn't mean I'm going to change my mind every time, but it'll give me much greater insight into some of those huge divides politically we have now in our country.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've always thought of it as if I can't understand my own process, how can I make it any better? And
1: and, and some deliberate thought about your process.
0: Right, right, right. Uh, okay. So uh, the field of behavioral psychology studies, the things that either help us or potentially inhibit us from being naturally good critical thinkers. Um, I, I, I think we need to, you know, I know we've been asking context questions, but I think we need a little bit of context about that broadly. Um, So I'm just going to pause and and, and get your thoughts.
1: Okay. Uh, When we talk about naturally good thinkers, uh, that's always sort of a loaded term. Um, We do certainly think some things well naturally, uh, but some really require some conscious learning and attention. Understanding, for example, the uh, simplest kinds of probabilities do not come naturally. Understanding um, some of our own biases, unless we get them hammered into us and think consciously, I need to correct, I need to think that I have these biases, it simply doesn't happen. Um, We find that, of course, many people are willing to say, I have a terrible memory I have never heard anyone say I'm a bad thinker and uh, it has to do with the way we, we think we don't get often don't get the evidence we need uh, when our thinking is not optimal because we made a selection and don't know about what we didn't do.
0: Yeah. 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 And and I think, you know, um, sometimes we have, you know, based on our existence, we've come up with some shortcuts and we're like, Oh, you know, if I didn't use this shortcut, I, I'd be paralyzed, right? So I'm going to use the shortcut, I'm going to get there. Uh, that shortcut sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't work, right?
1: Absolutely. A- and you're referring to the basic idea of two systems of thinking. And there's quite a few different theories about two systems of thinking. The most famous is, of course, associated with Daniel Kahneman, who I will say is one of my personal heroes. The guy, he's, He really is an incredible person. Very kind also. he always gone out of his way to be kind to me and you know, he's the Nobel Prize winner. Um, he um, has in his uh, very best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, took that general idea about two modes. Uh, one is intuitive, one is fast, and one is more deliberative and one is more slow, uh, slower. And one, they inform each other. So uh, for example, if every time I'm stopped, at, I saw a red light I stopped and thought, should I stop or shouldn't I stop? What are the, you know, that would be silly. We need to have it. If I'm going to buy ice cream at 31 flavors, you know, I don't need a decision tree. um, Or I'd be frozen in the ice cream counter. Um, So, you know, there must be 80 brands of peanut butter. I'd I'd never get out of the peanut butter aisle. So clearly we need some things that are fast. Uh, but sure, sometimes those fast things mislead us, and sometimes they're very useful. Uh, what we need to know is when we're using those shortcuts, heuristics, uh, those fast shortcuts, those rules of thumb uh, that help us um, un- un- navigate the world, and when it's important enough to slow down and to put in that extra effort. And just one short note, I use the term rules of thumb and I'm willing to bet that you're going to have some listener who's going to be unhappy with that term and, and perhaps that listener's correct. I'm told that it comes from an old reference that it was allowable to beat your wife uh, with a stick as long as it was no wider than your thumb. I'm not sure if that's the exact reference for it, but if so... I should not
0: have used it. <laughs> right. Yes. I'm going to go with that as the more generally, broadly understood concept of yes. eh, it's a generality that people rely on.
1: That's right. And that was a generality
0: that people relied uh, on. Well, that one in particular is not the, yes. the good one. Okay. So so, so so if the deliberate slow portion of the system is kind of where critical thinking resides, um, let's talk about what... Uh, you know, some of the pieces of that. So a good critical thinker, I think, will do many things well. Um, you call out uh, a number of things in your writing and research, and, and I'm going to list some of them in no particular order, and I have a purpose of doing this, so, so bear with me just a second. So sure. um, the, you know, one of them is recognize the heuristics, which you, you, you briefly touched on just a second ago, and cognitive biases. Um, uh, another is seeking out uh, contradictory evidence, um understanding individual shortcomings as, as thinkers, as ourselves, um, making risk-reward assessments, uh, generating reasoned methods of deciding between courses of action, getting to the end, getting to the end. Um, collect and synthesize information via memory and research principles, continuing to learn always. Thinking probabilistically, which you already touched on, but that is a one that I'm really going to go deep with you on, and determine the credibility of the source of the information, which you kind of tangentially touched on already as well. So let me just admit that we're only scratching the surface, um, you know, with this list and with the subheadings under this list. And um, in the interest of time, we're going to just touch on the aptitudes on the list that can have the biggest impact uh, on critical thinking at the moment. Is is that okay with you?
1: Absolutely. Okay, good. I'm often asked, what's the one most important, two most important things, if that's all we're going to touch on? And of course, that's like asking which of your children is your favorite, but I have favorite, I'm teasing. <laughs> well, I have two children, I love them equally. Um, the, I, see, a couple answers to that. One is giving reasons. Um, if you listen to people talk, um, you're in Manhattan, you must ride the subway. Uh, you yeah. yeah. know, just eavesdrop on people's conversations, sit at the long table at the coffee shop, and I think this and I think that, but very, very seldom will someone give you a why. And even less often will say, although I think that for this reason, you know, this alter- this other um, information makes it less strong. So I would say asking people, what's their reason? Can you give me the reason? Um, Another one I would say right away is simply questioning sources. I was reading a business case, and I I know you're a business person, and in this particular business case, they, you know, go around a large room and an office. Oh, everything's fine with our, our client base. Our customers love us, you know, walk around the room, marketing's going fine, blah, blah, blah. Next week they lose their biggest client. So what happened? Well, nobody stopped and said, you say our clients love us, what's the evidence for that? Have you spoken with the clients? Have you had any contact with our largest and smallest clients? So really stopping and, you know, where did that information come from? Why do you think it's true? You shouldn't be hit with a surprise when you lose your largest uh, client. There should have been some indication there. And then, I mean, maybe you couldn't have stopped it, but you shouldn't one week sooner have said everything's great. And not that I'm chastising that individual so much, but everyone around the room should make it a habit. And I'm talking about habitually questioning and thinking about or where we get our information.
0: There you go. Top two. Um, what I want to do is I want to put the first thing I mentioned, which is recognize heuristics and bias under mm-hmm. the umbrella of individual short uh, shortcomings, which you kind of were starting to get to there, honestly. Um, and that's because I think it's just such a, a, a kind of major part. Um, and so, you know, we talked about, we, we set the table with thinking fast and slow, uh, mm-hmm. But for those who have uh, uh, have not read it, can you explain what heuristics uh, and what biases are as they relate to critical thinking, right? I mean, rule of thumb, but not really rule of thumb, right? It's a little bit more than that. it's
1: It's something that we use as a uh, default, a default value. Uh, so um, if I ask you a question, I can pretty much guess under many instances what you're going to guess because it's what will be most available in your mind. So that availability would be an example. Uh, So availability has been criticized as perhaps one cause or one reason why um, we have so few underrepresented minorities getting the top awards. They're not coming to mind, availability. Um, it, you know, there's lots of ways that this influences it. So if I uh, instead have you stop and generate a list, um, and actually deliberately require that instead of, uh, who's your best choice for this year's top actor, ask you instead, I uh, you know, make a list of the top 10 actors you've seen this year. Look at your list. Is there, you know, so that you go beyond your first kind of comment, uh, Simplicity, Um, we tend to look for simple answers for complex questions. Um, Ideal, another topic that I've worked on for generations has for decades is uh, sex differences and cognitive abilities, very complicated topic. And people will want like the three word answer. It's your mother's attitude. It's all in your genes. It's societal, they want the simple question. And the the simple answer. The answer is not simple. The amp- answer is a complicated uh, mix of uh, developmental uh, development and culture, and you know, educational and and things that work together. And I think we tend to underestimate the complexity of so many of the things we deal with when we look for very simple answers.
0: So I see what you did there, right? You started with a heuristic, which was essentially, oh, this is sufficient for reaching an immediate kind of mental short-term goal. And then you actually showed how that can lead to a cognitive bias. And you gave us the availability bias, right? Which is what's easily available in memory. Um, And you actually, uh, you didn't reference it by name, but you gave us the Dunning-Kruger effect as well. Um, Correct. What are some of the, you know, you gave us two. I'm going to push you a little bit further. What are some of the cognitive biases, some other ones that we really should be looking out for, right?
1: Very, very difficult. The two, some are very difficult to, to get around. Um, one is our belief or our preference for uh, certain kinds of outcome, confirmation mm-hmm. bias. So it is extremely hard if I have a belief system uh, for me to accept information that runs counter to my belief uh, and to not quickly, you know, or to question information that supports it. Um, Another strong divide in our country right now has to do with the vaccination debate. If I am what's called an anti-vaxxer someone who believes that vaccinations actually cause autism and I can tell you right now for your listeners there have been meta-analyses of over a million kids that say it does not and the data are perfectly clear but what happens is at the same age when autism tends to become uh, developmental uh, is the same age when kids will often get their first set of full vaccines so you have two things operating there. You have correlation and cause. This, I had a vaccine, my perfectly healthy kid now has autism. And it is extremely difficult uh, to get people to see the other side. Every one of your listeners can tell us correlation is not cause. Every one of them can, but when they sit down at they're, you know, reading the New York Times and it says, um, Kids who go to preschool are better readers in first grade, they automatically think that preschool caused it, instead of thinking perhaps, and much more likely, uh, kids who went to preschool are from wealthier homes, they're from homes that have more books, et cetera, et cetera. So they're really, and these are extremely difficult. There was a senator whose son uh, committed suicide, and these are all true stories, after taking a certain kind of acne drug. Uh, for There is no way to convince this senator that the drug was not responsible. And, you know, we have, I don't care how much data you want to back into, you know, a truckload. Um, in this senator's mind, he had a healthy son who took a medication and then committed suicide. It's a tragedy. And I think we can all feel that pain and understand it and understand how these are uh, influence how we think.
0: So you're basically saying I believe a thing, and you're only going to choose data that confirms the belief in that thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go you're going
1: to reject data that, that doesn't. If I'm an anti voxer I can now go to websites where people will have anecdotes about the horrors of vaccine. So I can seek information that only confirms it.
0: Um, so what's a situation? Like there's an there's kind of a, the other side of that coin, maybe I'm wrong on this, is kind of cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the state of having inconsistent thoughts or beliefs and attitudes, right? Like, oh, I think these two things are true, but they can't make sense together. Like, and then I've got to change my behavior. Let's uh, tell me a little bit about that one in particular. That's kind of the opposite, Uh, right?
1: It's a very old um, effect in psychology, psychology, and by that means 1950s for psychology. The philosophers are laughing at us when I say very old, but it's the idea that we get two kinds of information that are inconsistent. And then what do we do with this? Uh, for Take, for example, stereotyping. Uh, I might believe that the members of some racial or ethnic group are not good in the sciences. And then I get information again and again. Here's this leading scientist. Here's this other leading scientist who is from that group. So what do I do? Well, I'm I'm more likely to say the stereotype is correct, but this is an aberration than I am to go back and say, maybe my stereotype is not correct. Very difficult to, to change, but it's not impossible. I mean, we you know, as I remind people, we once had slavery, and we, uh, we people can change. People can change attitudes. Not easy, uh, but with effort, um, we we can do it.
0: So I'm going to touch on one more, and then move on. Um, sure. Uh, the conjunction fallacy, and I always think of the Linda experiment whenever I think of the conjunction of fallacy.
1: That Everybody loves that one, uh, for, in case your listeners don't know it, it's the idea that if I gave you a information about some woman you don't know named Linda, uh, she was a feminist, she was active in the feminist movement, um, and then I give you a set of examples, you know, what do you think she's doing today, people are more likely to believe that she is both a librarian and a feminist than simply a librarian alone. And the number of people who are librarians must be larger. The probability must be larger than the others, and that's the idea of just simply how we think about base rates in society. Um, I mean, people from New York probably have no idea how many farmers there are in the world, including myself. <laughs> uh, and. Uh, But you know there are many more farmers than there are librarians; those sorts of things,
0: and that's the conjunction fallacy. Yeah, and that is somehow that we'll take the subset over the set that it comes from to be more likely. That's just nuts, right? Like, of course Uh, uh, you're going to take the bigger that then. Ben, that's almost coming back to probabilities. Okay. Okay. Um, So look, so I would advise people to learn. Uh, about cognitive biases, right? And for this, for if you want to become a better critical thinker, be at least be aware of the potential cognitive biases. We only t- we really, literally, only touched on a couple. There's lots. Um, besides biases, um, there's common tactics that arguers will use to win an argument. But the, but the tactics in them themselves they're antithetical to those who are actually trying to um, employ critical thinking to come to a good answer, right? And uh, mm-hmm. We, uh, you, you, I don't know if you're responsible for it bro- broadly, but we think of that um, category as fallacies, right? Mm-hmm. We call them fallacies. So let's touch on some of your favorite, or maybe I should say least favorite, depending on how you view them, um, fallacies.
1: Boy, there's so many. I always have a hard time knowing which are my, some of my least favorite. Uh, certainly the idea of name-calling, Um, The idea of denigrating the source of the information, ad hominem attacks, if you are uh, into your Latin. And uh, that's still extremely strong. Listen, we're in the middle of a political season. Listen to the way names get attached to political figures. Uh, Crooked so-and-so. So that as soon as that name comes up, the word crooked should come to mind and without even awareness influencing what it is that we're doing. The name calling is is very, very strong, and the idea is it gets attached. And if it's someone for whom I don't have a great deal of knowledge, which is true about a number of the candidates running now, you know, I I've met some of whom I've never heard before they started running. And uh, so, you know, what are the, the labels that automatically and unconsciously come to mind? Because that's how they have been uh, portrayed or labeled by the opposition. Well,
0: so what I, I always think about that is, like, if I can't attack the idea, then I attack the person.
1: That's always a way to do it. <laughs> that's always a way to do it. And, you know, sometimes attack the person may make sense if you are. A member of the Ku Klux Klan, I might take some of your statements differently than if I know you're not. Is that attacking the person or is that attacking the underlying beliefs of that person? And each one we've got to think through and figure when is it appropriate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any others that you like or dislike?
1: Uh, let's see. There are so many. False dichotomies. I yeah. know oh, about Slippery Slope. That's a good one. That one's if a good one for have-
0: That's a, as a VC, that's a, that's one we think about all the time.
1: Okay, sure. Slippery slope. Uh, If we uh, change our immigrant, if we don't change our immigration laws, then we're going to have people coming from all, and then we're not going to be, we're not going to be able to feed the country. And then we're going to have, you know, too many uh, immigrants that we can handle as if there's not a place for a reasonable immigration law that makes sense and doesn't overwhelm us. Um, there are slippery slopes, certainly is part of every argument for uh, against gay marriage. And uh, some of it is, is terribly insulting. Uh, if we allow two men to marry, then what are we going to allow? Three men to marry? And if we're going to have three-group marriage, why don't you marry your dog? I love my dog. And you know the idea that and the idea is once we get down that slope, it won't
0: stop. Right. And
1: there are stops. Right. Uh, along the way. That was and,
0: the that was a big argument they used against marijuana, right? If you start smoking marijuana, the next thing you're going to do is hard drugs, and then we're going to have a welfare state because everybody's going to exactly. be on hard drugs. Well, that's just ridiculous.
1: Uh, and the uh, and but it appeals to many people. Well, um, it's easy, it, it, right? It's It's easy easy and it's the idea is that these issues are complex and anytime you get an easy answer to a complex issue, you should stop and say, wow, is that going to do it?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So that's fallacies. Again, a ton of them, association effects, whole part fallacies. Uh, We talked about false dichotomies, lots of them. So, uh, you know, again, pick up this book. Find the fallacies because it will influence how you allow people to argue points against you, right? Uh, Or at very least how you make your decision when you're listening to somebody else make an uh, argument for or against a thing. Um, Okay. So I, all right, half a click back. Now that we know that we've got these things, how does a good critical thinker kind of counter the possibilities that any of these impediments, whether it's fallacies, whether it's biases, are actually creeping into their thinking process.
1: Okay, they probably are creeping into all of our
0: thinking. (laughs) So let's just uh, uh, take it as a given. Okay.
1: take it as a given. So let's decide first, when is it important? Because this is effortful. This is time consuming. So you want to decide, when are you going to put in the effort and the time to actually think through an issue. And uh, that's a decision. Um, And some clearly need such such decisions. Um, We need to stop and say, hmm, what's the evidence for that? What's the evidence against that? Uh, Who should I trust? Whom should I trust? Uh, What makes you a trustworthy person? Um, How do I know a fake news from a real news and that is getting that's a whole brand new question and we in our new edition of thought and knowledge we have actually whole new sections on this how you would you know track back certain quotations how you would look at a range of political websites uh if something seems odd why does it feel odd to you um why, why, do, why is there a growing movement in our country to believe that the earth is flat? Now, you might laugh at that, but in fact, that has been, and every time a rapper, and I think rappers' names, uh, tweets something about the earth really is flat, belief numbers go up. Now, why would I trust a rapper's opinion on the shape of the earth? Uh, instead of, mm, I guess, pretty much most scientists that I, you might want to find, um, why am I listening to, to that? Uh, you know, so that we really have to consciously stop and say, I've got to think about this. And then know, just saying, think about it doesn't help. But what to do to think about it, uh, how to check your sources, um, how to check a variety of sources, um who is the appropriate authority? This rapper is certainly not an appropriate authority. Yet it's amazing how many people are willing to believe when this person, you know, wraps it. Um, and um, you know, those are just a much more stopping, checking, and self asking, where did it come from? Um, can I deliberately find evidence against what I believe? Why am I favoring this so much? That sort of questions.
0: Well, rappers do travel a lot, so maybe. Oh,
1: sure. You'd, you'd think some of them would have fallen off the earth.
0: By now, yeah, by now. Yeah, I right. really? an- another couple of, um, these, are, these are quick one-offs, and we'll get to our next subject. Um, otherwise, we really will be going forever and ever. Um, the difference between validity and truth.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, i like to say there are only two fields that actually have truth, math and philosophy. Uh, The rest of us have evidence. Uh, So unless you're a mathematician or a philosopher, you're always dealing with evidence. Um, Validity comes from a set of rules in reasoning. And it's a set of rules that's that's of limited usefulness. I've heard plenty of people argue that it's not useful at all, but I believe it's of limited usefulness. And it says if these certain premises are true, then... The uh, conclusion must be so, and that would be validity. Um, and um, you know in real life, we almost never have uh, sets of rules that we can simply make the assumption that this is always true. So truth is a far more difficult concept, and it's usually accumulation of data, converging evidence, um, you know from different sources. Um, and uh, different strengths of arguments. So they are different concepts.
0: Yeah. I've always thought of validity as uh, referring to the form of the argument. And some people will say, oh, the form of the argument was correct, therefore it must be true. But no, that's not right. Because th- while the, the form of the argument may be right, the uh, content of the argument may be wrong, in which case it cannot be true. That's how at least how I've looked at it. You touched yes. on...
1: Yeah, the example I use in the book would be, um, uh, you are uglier than your sister, your sister is uglier than Frankenstein, therefore you are uglier than Frankenstein. Absolutely valid, but you may not even have a sister, so that doesn't make it true.
0: There you go. Um, you touched on this uh, uh, without being prompted really early in our uh, discussion. There's the difference uh, between opinion. And reasoned judgment and fact, right? And in, in my as I was thinking about these, I, I kind of think of these almost as degrees of truth. I don't know you you might push back against that. Um, but just a little color because you did touch on it earlier. Mm-hmm. No, I think uh, degrees
1: would be fine. Um, fact is some that's difficult, but it would have sort of a verifiable kind of value. So if I say your cereal has 100% of your vitamin D for the day, uh, then there should be you know, sources that can check this out, that there are trusted sources, and that these become facts. Uh, opinion would be more like preference. Um, my opinion is maybe everyone should learn how to knit because it's a lot of fun that's an opinion. A a reasoned uh, opinion would be one where it's based on reasonable kinds of evidence and data. So if I say most people will earn more money if they go to college than if they don't, that's a reasoned sort of uh, opinion. It's based on lots of data. And of course, it may not have mean every individual but it's, it's a generally strong argument, a little different from legal opinion, um, which, which is a separate idea.
0: I mean, I think this is the reason I bring it up is because I think it's important when someone's making an argument to go, all right, are they arguing with an opinion? Or are they arguing with reason judgment? Or are they arguing with a fact? Because if they're arguing with a fact, OK, that should carry more weight in my mind than if they're arguing with an opinion. Um, all right. So let's get to the second uh, subtopic here um, under the heading of Seeking Out Contrary Evidence. Um, when you're making assessments. And you know some may argue uh, that doing so um, is against human nature because it's painful to do that, right? And I would argue that making a bad decision is even more painful. So I, my, my first question about this is, why would people possibly trade the short-term pain aversion for long-term pain aversion? Or maybe they don't do it, I don't know.
1: Uh, deliberately seeking contrary information is indeed painful. I don't know if you have strong political beliefs, I do, so listening to the other side can be painful for me. Uh, but that all the more reason why I need to do it. Um, and you are right, the the uh, pain of a poor decision, um, you, you're a business person and uh, I can give you a hundred reasons why you should invest in my company. Uh, I ought to be able to give you a hundred reasons why maybe it's not the best idea, and the ones why you should should be stronger enough to carry the day. Uh, but we we need to develop the habit of deliberately looking for things that we don't agree with. Mm. And it's hard. And oh, very hard. This yeah. is, none of it. This is easy.
0: So let's talk about the uh, when and what. Right? How do we know when is the right time to seek contradictory uh, contradict evidence? And what actual evidence should we seek out? Sure.
1: And that's going to, what we seek is going to depend a lot on the nature of what it is that we're dealing with. Um, uh, The actual what is going to, I may need to look at um, population values. I might need to look at, I mean, you're a business person, so I'm trying to put these in business context but it it could have to be that I have to look at uh, the way salaries are changing, the way house costs, you know, those kinds of data. uh, So that if I want to convince you uh, that it's a good thing to build large single family homes, um, and I can tell you know, there are lots of rich people who want to buy it. I would also be able to tell you that the population is uh, changing away, moving away from large families and, you know, if, we need to do it when what we're dealing with is important enough yeah. to invest that time.
0: I'll tell you what I do. I, I'll have a conversation about with my argument. I'll make my argument and I'll listen and I will try to assess where my my argument is most vulnerable. And it's not easy to do that because you're going to want to say how it's not. But but if we're, wherever the most pushback comes, that is typically the place I need to go find data.
1: Okay, and it might be useful for you to take that argument to someone who disagrees. Yes. And someone who you whom you respect who exactly. disagrees. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we can disagree. We can. I can very much disagree with people who I think. You know, we can see exactly the same issue, and we can disagree because we think different pieces of information are more important or more salient. Uh, but I would say, if it's something that's important for you. Um, medical decisions, everyone's going to make difficult medical decisions. And uh, we're often going to make those difficult medical decisions without the expertise. So we're going to have to seek more than one opinion. We're going to have to try to figure out that you know there's more than one way to treat something and try to figure out the probabilities of a good outcome and what's important to us. Those are times when it's obviously important. We're talking about investing uh, our life savings. That's important. I'm talking about, do I move to California from New York? Something I did. Uh, you know, that was important. you hear probably hear the accent. Uh, and, you know, what is it that, you know, when is it worth the time and, and when is it worth the effort? And, uh, and really it becomes a trigger. That this is
0: something to do. Well, I think what I hear you saying is that the people who actually do seek out contradictory evidence, um, they tend to remain uh, kind of actively open-minded, right? They're 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 not reaching their conclusion such that the you know they're now subject to confirmation bias, right? They're like, oh, oh, I've decided, and so now I can't hear you because it doesn't agree with what I already decided. You got to actually yeah. keep your your mind open. While you're finding that contradictory evidence to the possibility, oh, you know what? It might be this way. It might be the other way.
1: Yeah, and that's very important. And there may be some issues about which we need to recognize that perhaps we can't. Um, and you know, we have all have very strong biases about certain sorts of issues. And um, I remember many years ago doing research with under with a graduate student. And we were looking actually at Latino test scores, because that's the kind of research that I do. And it was a um, young Hispanic professor. And he said, if I don't get the kind of information I want, I don't know what I'll do. You know, this was a study. And indeed, you know, I think it was very wise that he recognized that and that we talk it through and that we understand that we give voice to data. And... um, you know, and sometimes we get answers we don't like, but how do we handle them when it's very close to something that we care about?
0: Well, in the what, what you need to do is you need to recognize that the, the longer term uh, damage or value destruction uh, is certainly greater, uh, even though it's farther out into the future than the near term um, pain associated with it. All right, let's, let's swap again topics. Uh, I know we were brief on that one, but I want to switch to the heading of um, uh, generate reason methods of deciding between courses of action. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with the baseline that logic is essentially just the rules for determining valid conclusion, and that pragmatism, not the same, is when we add our own knowledge uh, and, and belief, and, and that's rightly or wrongly to that logic, right? So we've got logic and then we've got pragmatism. Um, what are some of the methods that we should use uh, to generate reasoned methods of uh, deciding between course of action?
1: Um, well, first, when we talk about logic, um, it's used in two different ter- ways, one way where we're talking about the standard rules of syllogisms or those sorts of things, and the other just simply means we're thinking in a very uh, straightforward fashion that's clear, and they're not quite the same thing. Uh, It's like finding that we have a valid argument, but it's completely wrong, Um, and that would be the rules of logic. Um, If we want to know how do we make reasoned courses of action, um, we, you know, I'm a very big, if it's a difficult, important decision, what are you going to do after college? Are you going to invest most of your money into a particular company? Uh, Are you going to, you know, pull up your stakes, move to a small town and pursue your dream of being a small town farmer, whatever it is, um, things that are important uh, and they're gonna be different for all of us, then I really think we need to start using paper and pencil because we're gonna quickly overrun short-term memory. And I have a whole section on memory, memory biases, and um, something about putting it down on paper and actually getting it organized, coming back to it more than one session So it's not something I'm going to do in the next 15 minutes. I'm going to decide what to do with all your money Um, or, uh, you know, should we have that major surgery or whatever that is um, and actually generate some uh, what's important to you. Um, We're not going to all have the same decision. It might be right for you to give it all up and become a small town farmer. It would not be right for me. So it's going to have, based on a lot of those things, are personal. How important something is for you. And then list the sorts of things that are important. Perhaps nearness of family is important. Uh, perhaps what uh, your significant other thinks about something is important to you. So it's not just you know what it is it's important. And then what are the possible kinds of actions? So maybe it isn't just move to a small town, maybe I could move to a suburb of New York City and have a farm, you know, so that there, what are the other inner, so it's not ever an either or kind of issue. So there's, there's a number of ways to go about creating those steps.
0: One thing that I would point out is whether you're using inference or analogy or deduction or inductive reasoning, whatever it is, it typically tends to be recursive, meaning that you should, you should you should never really stop going in that mental circle to reconfirm information to reconfirm uh you know the decision process to reconfirm the facts um I, you know that was one thing that really struck stuck out to me um in your you know in your book about that and, and I was like oh yes you, you don't a decision doesn't ever really stop honestly <laughs> until mm-hmm. the last moment um until
1: the, yeah. when you sign that check
0: exactly when I you sign check the check back. yeah um, Until
1: then, you've to be rethinking it. This
0: is one of the hardest questions, and I've asked it to a couple people, um, and I'm, I'm really curious about your opinion. How should emotions um, that are not inherently purely rational, of course, uh, play into a decision method? Do you, you, you I'm try, a psychologist. Yeah. I mean, do you, try to, do you try to exclude them and say, ah, i gotta, I got to fence those off, or do you say, oh, you know what, I can't fence those off. This has got to be part of the process, and I've got to kind of bake them in.
1: It has to be part of the process. We are not uh, unfeeling cognitive machines. We are people with feelings and with emotions. Um, Let's take some very difficult medical decisions. Uh, How I feel about being seriously handicapped, how I might feel about end-of-life issues, Um, they're not going to be the same and they are critically important in how I make those decisions. And that's true for almost any of these decisions. Um, When I talk about a desirable outcome, uh, it's gonna be different for each of us because we have different things that we care about. Um, You might care a great deal about what your parents think about you. Um, And uh, you might make a decision about your life that will make them proud, and maybe that's what's right for you, um, but it wouldn't meet, make it right for someone else. So we really ha- must put into all those actions, uh, you know, how do we feel about it? And I think that's important.
0: Yeah, uh, and, and and that's why it's hard, to... right? That's why it's yeah. hard because you, it's that's very unquantifiable. Uh, sometimes, but well,
1: we do quantify it uh, in psychology. We have an old saying: if it exists. We can measure it. We measure intelligence. We measure personality. We don't do it perfectly, obviously, um, but uh, I should be able to measure. You should be able to think. How bad will it be for you, or how good will it be for you? How important? I'm, I'm just using your parents as an example, but you can pick anything that your parents approve of you, and and that. It it's going to have to be part of how we make our, our life decisions.
0: So we can measure it. Okay, this is perfect um, because what I'm going to do now is I'm going to combine two of the other discussion topics, the uh, make a risk reward assessment, which we talked about at the beginning, and think probabilistically, which you've already mentioned once. And I'm going to combine that into a topic that I think the former presidential candidate Andrew Yang would approve of, and I'm going to call the topic Use Math.
1: Okay. Well, you uh, certainly would approve of that. Yes. That's
0: yes. So, in terms of assessing risk or in in quantifying emotion, um, what are some of the tools that you would uh, you know look to use, or in, in, the, in the, if it's a pitfall that you would actually look out for?
1: Okay. I mean, I you could certainly sit and make a decision sheet where you actually say, let's say on a scale of one to five. How how important is it that uh, your friends approve of what you do? Uh, and, and you know, that for some people critical, for others not. How important? And that's just, and these are your subjective estimates. Now, um, can we be off? Can we skew it in ways that uh, support what we believe to be true? Sure, but that's part of that process of understanding what's important to yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. So it's not so much.
0: So do you think you, do you think you would do this in terms of probability? Is this a place where probability can start to go? Go, yeah, I think it's two thirds probable. I'll be X amount of happy. Uh, you know, is that a place where you can start to, you know, just mentally um, find edges around some of these things?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I may have all sorts of career goals. Uh, as much as I might want to be a Laker. I'm in California. I'm in LA. It's not going to happen. Uh, So that would not be a, you know, a zero probability. Um, But there are other sorts of things that are maybe a little less silly. What's the chances that, you know, I would be successful in sales? What's the chances that I would be successful in my music career, which I've always wanted? You may turn out to say the very low probability that I'm going to be a successful musician but it means so much to me that i'm going to do it anyway and i understand in advance that it has a low probability of success and that's where your emotion comes in
0: so i think you just told me two things which are i think immensely helpful if i and i'm paraphrasing here just if you didn't tell me this then then stop me you told me that probability is used to decide uh, or express the strength of a belief mm-hmm. uh and i think you told me that probability um, can be helpful when you're making decisions that don't exactly have complete information. I oh, think we that- never
1: have complete information. Right. I mean, we're dealing with the future. And by definition, we do not have complete information. Not going to ever happen. So we're always dealing with some probabilities. Some are much more likely than others. Um, and maybe we don't even think of them because some are so unlikely or so very likely. Um, but it's always incomplete information. And um, unfortunately, we're not comfortable thinking with numbers for the most part. And, and that's a mistake. That's, that's something we could become more comfortable with. We, I'm not talking about, you know, teaching every high school kid calculus. But I am talking about teaching every high school and college kid statistics. For sure. Um, instead, um, I'm, so that we become much more comfortable with using numbers every day as opposed to our current math requirements, which are perfect for people who want to be scientists and mathematicians and tend to shut out access for a lot of the rest of the world. Mm.
0: So, all right, so I think we've got a couple of the strengths uh, in terms of the risk-rewarders. Let, let's focus a little bit on some of the pitfalls. And these are, again, I think these are, this is back to your your point you just made about statistics, right? What are some of the, the pitfalls in statistics Uh, is that, you know, facts can be made to lie to us, right? And so what are some of the ways that facts can be made to lie to us?
1: Sure. Um, That old expression um, about lying with statistics, which is the title of an incredibly good tiny book written in 1954, but still is good. Uh, I wish I could do the read a little poem, something about uh, it can make a statistic look like what she ain't. Uh, the way we protect against that is by understanding statistics. Uh, you can be misled if you don't understand statistics. Um, and um, we see this all the time. Um, we see that um, the health organizations suggest that we stop you know, screening young women for mammograms or younger men for a PSA tests for prostate cancer. And you might say, how could that be? Um, Statistics, don't we find some that wouldn't have found other ways? And you need to understand, yes, but the harm by all the false positives is much greater. Not an intuitive concept, not an easy concept, but one that every single one of us has to deal with. And uh, our physicians are not even trained that way.
0: Yeah. Well, I can tell you that this is a place that I can actually make a contribution because I can, say, so I can tell you some of the pitfalls that I see all the time that don't even require having taken a statistics course. And um, you know, one of the pitfalls is if someone gives me a really small sample size and I'm expected to make a decision against like, oh, it's three data points, but three of them are all positive. I'm like, mm, yeah, give me 200 data points, and then we'll tell you if the three positive ones are, in, in fact, the rule or the exception. Um, another one is I often get a sample. And there's a bias in the sample, right? So, I mean, the decision essentially pre-made for me in the sample that I'm given, and that's no good. Um, oftentimes, you know, here's my revenue forecast. It was it grew 300% this year, so I'm going to grow 300% next year, and, three, and oh my God, this company is going to be nine times as big in only two years. This is fantastic. Dude, just don't extrapolate, or at least understand the pros and cons of extrapolating in a straight lane out into the future right? That's, that's, these are easy ones, right? And then, you know, yeah, what's your revenue going to be next year? Oh, it's going to be 3.625 million. Come on, man. You have no idea. It's going to be 0.625 0. 0.625 million. Like you don't even know who your next two customers are. So there's like false precision. I, those are the ones. And I didn't take a statistics course to tell you that these beat me over the head every day. So I'm that that's, you know, you just provided my opening for me to actually share something about. Okay. About. I couldn't, have,
1: you know, obviously you're talking to the choir here. Yeah. Um, and these are everyday thinking skills. Yeah. Um, I mean, these are completely everyday thinking skills. Uh, you know, three out of four people are sitting in a, you know, in a doctor's office are women. So you know, women get more headaches than men, based on these data, that sort of thing. And we do it all the time. We make decisions about individuals based on small samples. Uh, I'm going to meet you somewhere, and you're late. Well, if you're late once, that's it. You're late. You're a person. Yeah, it's a small sample.
0: Right. Right. There's a, I've just got a joke in my head that's inappropriate. <laughs>
1: Good. Restrain it.
0: That's another critical thing to <laughs> um, The last one that I thought of, which I just didn't bring up, but just actually came into mind is reversion or regression to the mean, mm-hmm. um, which happens to people all the time. Right. Um, I always, I always think of the, the uh, dogs of the Dow example, right? Like, Hey, we're going to bet on the worst ones because they just got to eventually go back to normal.
1: Eh, maybe, yeah, maybe not. It's, that is extremely difficult for people to understand. And it is one of the ones that is everywhere. Um, I did a uh, discussion with some of our top military intelligence. As you might guess, military intelligence are completely concerned with having people who are good thinkers. Good idea. We would all agree. And uh, they, I was talking about regression to the mean. And someone says, well, I don't even know what that is. I said, well, let's suppose that, you know, you had a lot of activity uh, regarding something on uh, your your intelligence network for two weeks, and then it went back to normal. Uh, Do you start looking for what happened during those two weeks? It's a possibility. Or, in fact, do you think that this is simply random variation around the mean? And... um, Almost no one said random variation around. And this is a group of really people who, who, who are, I respect a great deal. Uh, but these are things that need to be learned.
0: Yeah. They're, yeah, they're, they're paid to be paranoid. So of course they're going to take that point of view. Right. Um, all right. So uh, last topic that I want to cover before I uh, start to wrap things up, um, which is really more this 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 next one is really, in my mind, more of an art than a science. But you you are out of the gate with this. And so and I'm by the way, I think it's immensely important is determining source credibility. Right. Whose mouth is it coming out of and how uh, valid is is that person to be able to... Say, valid isn't probably the right way, but how credible is that person to be able to say that particular thing? So uh, here's what i want to do. I want to start by defining psycholinguistics. Um, so psycholinguistics is a branch of psychology concerned with how people produce and consume language. And when we identify the different techniques that people use... It can be really helpful in uh, assigning the credibility to the source like we were just talking about. So literally, you know somebody there's somebody out there a, psych- a psycholinguistic who's literally just getting paid to understand how we speak and what that does to how we consume the information that that that, that is created. Um, okay, so but now that I've done that, uh, set the table for you, let's talk about some of the ways in which people actually can manipulate language and that we should be on the lookout for, right?
1: Oh, goodness, there's so many, it's hard to even know where to start. Uh, I can manipulate language, quotes. Everyone agrees. All, All good Americans will understand this. Well, if you're doubting, uh, you know, I already labeled you under bad Americans category. Uh, There's just uh, so many ways I can do it. I can do it with only an idiot would believe, blah, blah, blah. So I've already sort of set a stage, very difficult to come back and say, well, maybe I'm one of those idiots. Uh, Maybe, you know, those sorts of things. Um, So how we decide? I mean, we have whole sets of steps. On deciding whom to believe, because this is far more critical now than it ever has been. We always had bad information, but now we have deliberate disinformation at the click of a finger. And it's very sometimes not that easy to decide. And there's a list of questions Does this person stand to make any personal gain? Uh, And, you know, could well be that Purdue chickens are the best chickens that ever were. But if Mr. Purdue tells me this, I should at least be critical. Doesn't mean he's wrong. I certainly should examine this a lot better. Uh, it should be, um, you know, am I, uh, If I, it's really important that, um, you know, we increase funds for the military. May very well be true. But who is saying that? Is it a, a budget analyst? Uh, is it someone in who's going to stand to gain from these budgets increases? It, you know what is the thing, what is the rationale for the person who is putting this forward? and can I find alternative views from someone who would be equally credible? And if they're both credible, how do I, de- you know, pull apart the differences in what they're saying? Or are they using different data sets? But um, this is really important now. Um, we have so much misinformation that is clearly influencing elections around the world. I mean, There's plenty of examples around the world where people are deliberately um, making claims that are going to influence how people think and vote. Hey, look! Um, it's a
0: science, right? It's yeah, a science. It's I can I can figure out a way to lead that horse to water, man. Um, yeah, you, know, you talked about labeling, of course, right? Low energy, so and so. You know, crooked, so and so. Yes. Emotional language, right? Like, hey, I'll I'll say something that'll you know. I think in politics they call it red meat, right? Firing him up. Mm-hmm. Firing him up. That's another one that I always uh, try to stay out of. No.
1: Knee-jerk liberal.
0: Knee-jerk liberal, sure. Um, you know what? One of the ones that I um, uh, I think is quite clever, uh, not that I'm advocating it, is the intentional misuse of language, right? Where mm-hmm. I will say something that you kind of know what the meaning is, but I don't use it in the way that where that meaning is actually the meaning that's being intended, right? Or I'll start with one meaning and then I'll get to it, then it'll have a different meaning by the time I'm you know, use it in the next sentence or something like that
1: mm-hmm, absolutely that's it and these are all if you ask people what they remember after they've listened to you, uh they tend to remember the misleading comments, yeah, because that's how they are coded and how they're understanding yeah yeah,
0: language. Yeah, yeah, um you know the other thing about that's not even manipulation of language, there's just purely the plain old attempts for obfuscation, mm-hmm. right uh one should eschew obfuscation
1: absolutely <laughs> yes uh, or there's plenty of examples in the law
0: <laughs> yeah 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 um you know, the, i mean ambiguity again is it just an art right um vagueness you know, I, you, know you you turn on turn on a news sta- station and just listen to someone say something and go wait what did they just say again and you know if you can if you can understand if you can figure it out good for you um, okay. Let's see. Where am I at here? Um, okay. So let's say that I've got a person that I have decided it may not be the, uh, perfect credible source, right? Mm-hmm. How do I adjust or assign value to this in my consideration, right? Like how do I, you know, okay, it's a half a click down, it's two clicks down. You know, this person has zero credibility. Oh, it's 10% credibility. How do I, how do I, Kind of calibrate.
1: Have you ever dealt with someone whom you believe lies a great deal? Uh, uh, yes, you probably have. Yes,
0: yes. I, I mean, I, I have. Um,
1: and as soon as that happens, as soon as that discussion starts, you're thinking, I'm not going to trust anything this person says, which is probably too strong. Um, and then it becomes, you know, how much am I willing to believe? Every statement that this person says, I start scrutinizing, um, which is different if it's someone whom I trust. And the question becomes, how do we decide whom to trust? And that's really the important issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What what fascinates me is, I'm sure everyone thinks they're good at assigning a probability to the credibility of the other person. What fascinates me is when I see somebody... That I'm like, all right, you just heard the evidence, you just you understand the level of credibility. Maybe even in what you were just told, there's a fib or two, and yet they're just like cognitive dissidents. Yeah, I believe it, right? Absolutely. It, it benefits I, me. I, I, I believe it.
1: That uh, something is tell you give you information. Tell you it's not true. Come back two days later, you remember the information and not the fact that it was not true. Uh, we have very strong biases, and we can all, I mean, critical thinking development is a lifelong process. Uh, we can all continue to get better. It's not something you have or don't have, but it's something we develop and exists in degrees, and sometimes we're more likely to use them in some contexts than others, uh, but it's really yeah. worth that
0: hard work. Yeah, so I mean, it. so like you just put a fine bow on it here, right? Like we, yeah, you know, we talked about heuristics and biases and fallacies and you know misleading words and you know errors in logic. So like, paying attention to this stuff, uh, learning about it, understanding it in context. Um, if you do that, you can't help but make better decisions. Um, obviously. So you know, we talked about a bunch of things. We could have talked about a a lot, lot more. Is there something about the topic that you would like to address that was just glaringly missing from the things that you know, I brought up?
1: Yes. I think one of the most important things is, what is the evidence that people can become better thinkers? And that is a critical question. And indeed, in our book, Thought, Knowledge, An Introduction to Critical Thinking, we have a lot of evidence. We have lots of references. Are we always successful? No. But there's nothing about thinking that would be different. We take math courses in the belief that when we need to use math, we will be better. We take English courses in the belief that when we go to write and speak, we will be better. Are we better all the time? Is everyone better? No. But indeed, if things are done carefully, our assessments are right. Uh, we can clearly show gains in thinking for skills that have been taught and learned and rehearsed. And I think that that's a very important piece of evidence um, because I'm asking you to ask the tough questions. You know, can this be done? And um, we can give you pages of references. And sure, there are failures, but everyone calls something different critical thinking. If I merely say you think hard about it, not gonna do it. But if a fact I say, Here's five skills. Always think, give a reason. Always ask, what's the evidence? Um, We can make a big change.
0: Yeah. And and so I would say even if you can make only an incremental change, it's still worth the time.
1: Only is not even the right word there. An incremental change is important. Sometimes small changes have big effects.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anything else? On that,
1: I think that the important question being what's the evidence that we can do it? And the question that I started with that you hadn't asked at the beginning, why this is more important than ever before. And um, we we have uh, a very close, very small earth at this point. I can easily talk to colleagues, interact with them everywhere in the world, and um, the stakes are extremely high for a mistake. And, um, I believe it's more important than ever.
0: Okay.
1: And uh, we can do it.
0: And we can do it. Um, last question. So we talked about, uh, your book, you just mentioned thought and knowledge and introduction to critical thinking. Um, what other books are your favorites on the subject?
1: Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, boy, there's so many books out there. Um, I, I have, we just finished the second edition with a colleague, Albert Sternberg, who is at Cornell on critical thinking and psychology that deals specifically with psychology critical thinking. I was fortunate enough to work on an incredible game called Operation Ares uh, with colleagues at a number of different universities uh, where uh, in fact you need to use some of the skills of critical thinking to save the world. Uh, we're being invaded by aliens and they're, uh, and uh, people are, in fact, are being uh, led to make uh, poor consumer decisions uh, with faulty data. Uh, you know, how do we save the world? So, it's, you know, it's a really neat game. Uh, you can hunt it down uh, on the Internet if you just put in operation areas.
0: Sounds good. Gamifying critical thinking doesn't seem like a bad thing. Um mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Halpern, Diane, sorry, Diane, um, let's sadly wrap it up here. I, I, I Again, I'm sure I could go on and on. I really want to thank you very much. Um, this is a learned perspective. Uh, it's important. Uh, it's been a conversation that I hope everyone, uh, including my son, can take something away from. So thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed speaking with you. And I'm always available if people want to shoot me a question on email.
0: Ah, so I probably should have asked that. How can people connect you?
1: Oh, easily, diane.helpern at cmcmyuniversity.edu.
0: This has been Intangibles. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and many other podcast platforms. You can also find it at its home on the web, which is www.intangiblespodcast.com. I'm Steve Berg. Thank you. Keep an eye out for the next episode.